that's the odd career thing is I'm trying to not have a career. I'm trying to have a life at this point, but I want to have a life where I make a lot of music. <laughs> Welcome to The Resistance a podcast that features honest discussion with meaningful artists about the opposing forces we all face when moving toward our better selves. I'm your host, Matt Connor. Speaking with Glenn Phillips about what he's learned over the years is a bit like drinking from the proverbial fire hose. That's an expected outcome given that Phillips has been writing and recording since he was a teenager with Toad the Wet Sprocket. 30 years later, and now a solo artist, Glenn has a lot to say about the resistance especially since he's experienced it at so many different stages of the creative life. These days, the resistance might have him descend into well-worn patterns of self-loathing. But more than anything, Glenn says he's learning to be kind to himself, to have compassion, even in his most frustrating moments when he's undisciplined or unable to focus. While Glenn jokes that he peaked at 23 and was, quote, over, commercially speaking, at the age of 26, the reality is that the singer-songwriter has crafted a stunning solo catalog that stands taller than his band's own chart-topping work. It's the result of nurturing his own internal soil over the years, with space, with community, and with a shift away from commercial demands altogether. In this episode, we sit down for a career-spanning conversation with an artist who has much to say about the opposing forces not only at work against our creativity, but against our growth as persons as well. Glenn, how are you today? I'm doing great, thank you. Hello. Hey, we appreciate you joining us and talking about The Resistance. I know that you've read the book, which was sort of the inspired material for the podcast as we were talking earlier. Uh, But I just want to reread a bit of this just to get our conversation going. Yeah. Um, The author is Stephen Pressfield from the book The War of Art. Glenn, you've said you've given a few copies of this away in your in your artistic career? Yeah, I've recommended it to a lot of people, and I tend to find find books I like and buy them for people um, more than let once. Me just, <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me spur the conversation by what Pressfield just says here. He just says, most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. And between the two stands resistance. I've been reading that just to open this whole first season of the podcast um, to get us going. And I, I just wonder kind of where you're at in your career mm-hmm. and the amount of experience you have, where you kind of sit with that quote. Well, I mean, I've had a period of kind of pretty intense life change over the last four years. Um, of, you know, was married, was with my wife for 25 years, two of our kids out of the three, uh, you know, went away, moved away, went to college, you know, from, went from California to New York and Colorado. Um, my youngest is going to move out in a year. So, it, you know, it's been a huge shift in my life. And, you know, being in Santa Barbara, too, and trying to figure out, um, you know, just housing is really, it's expensive here. <laughs> um, and I used to have a studio and it's, you know, having your place to go. And, you know, on, on the one hand, there are excuses that I think we can build about like, oh, if I just have 
you know, this particular container, then I can do my work. Um, but there are certain things that make a big difference. You know, I was living, uh, I was going to move into a place that was like going to be really great for working. And then the landslides hit last year. Um, and so the debris flow in Santa Barbara. So Montecito, just uh, the place I was moving in turned into a mud field. And so uh, I was in yurts for a good eight months. And like living in a yurt is really great. It's, you know, very small. I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff. I, I like that I can live without a lot of um, extra baggage in my life. And at the same time, yurts are fantastically unsoundproofed. Uh, and the, the place I was living in, there's a now like a, you know, they were framing a house right next to it uh, for the last couple months. And it got to the point where I just, you know, 7am, it's like there's a crew there with radios blaring and like, I, I can't do anything creatively in that environment. <laughs> so I finally moved myself, um, you know, got an apartment and just took a big swallow and spent the money on Santa Barbara rent uh, and have a really quiet place. The first place I found, I said, well, I need a quiet during the day. And the landlady said, uh, well, it used to be a recording studio. Like, I think that'll do great. And so it's got these nice thick walls and, you know, it's just silent during the day. And, um, you know, as much as I can make, you know, it's like there's trying to find out like what, what's resistance. What's the part of me that says, Oh, I'll start writing when, and what's the other part that it's like, actually you can't, if you're in the middle of a construction site, it's really a bad place for songwriting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just doesn't function. Um, so it's been good to get there and kind of, have an environment that's more conducive and now be back rather than rather than have this larger situational barrier. Now it's just all my old excuses uh, coming back to, to haunt me. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that wasn't exactly the question you asked you. And, and a strange thing for me has been in the last few years, I've gotten, um, have kind of a, a meditation group where music is very central to it and out, of that, I've started teaching uh, community singing circles and uh, doing this non-performative musical modality where, you know, we're singing. It's like a lot of, you know, lyrics by Hafiz or Rumi and these kind of simple, repetitive songs. I mean, in some ways, it's a little like kirtan music where it's you know, just a few things that can be learned really quickly, but they're just difficult enough that they engage the mind. And it's it's not performance oriented. So I'm leading these drop-in choirs and it's not about singing and being seen. Uh, it's about just the act of singing together. And a lot of the people are people who've been told they can't sing and they're kind of reclaiming that part of themselves. And it's completely outside of you know, this professional world that I've inhabited. Um, and I, I love it. it I, you know, I've been wondering for years, like, how do we return to a relationship with music that's, you know, the opposite of American Idol, you know, that's not about being the star and being seen. It's about being part of something larger. And um, so it's been hard for me to write pop songs. I'm supposed to come up with an album and 
I have, I've been not wanting to write anything in that <laughs> modality. And so I finally have this space and I'm trying to give myself a set of prompts and show up regularly. And, um, I've started by recording more than writing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a funny process for me, uh, cause it's supposed to be my job and I've, I've been wanting to do all these things. I don't really make much, if any money from, uh, that are just like such good food for the soul. Cause you know, if you do what you love for a living on the one hand, it's like the best gift ever, right? It's the perfect life. On the other hand, if you do what you love for a living and it's not working out financially very well, or you're, you know, seeing, you know, it's being difficult to put your stuff out in the world. It can, it can kind of mess up your, your love for this thing you do. And for a while, um, you know, I think it's an adjustment for any musician is like going, okay, I had my heyday. I was at my most popular. I peaked at probably 23 you know, which is my daughter's age, right? My oldest daughter. So I had my largest commercial success by 23. And I was kind of in a massive, in a commercial sense that anyone would notice I was over by 27, 26. And so how do you kind of reconcile? It's like, okay, I still feel like I don't want to live in the past. I'm not a I'm not full of um, a sense of nostalgia for my own career. Uh, so how do I keep writing and staying relevant? And uh, so for me, it's this matter of like, I'm no longer trying to think in terms of career. And it's weird trying to figure out like, how do I put out music and be inspired to do it while being as removed from any idea of commercial success as possible? Like I, I just, the music industry in particular has changed so much. I mean, we're still touring around playing live with boxes full of compact discs. People don't even have compact disc players anymore. It, it, we are selling, I mean, at least when you get a book on Kindle, it's you still buy it, right? Um, nobody buys music anymore. And, you know, you're competing for playlists. I don't even want to know about that stuff. So. It's a it's a strange world to go like, huh, I, I used to make a living selling music. You know, now everybody's on tour because it's the only way to make anything. <laughs> but how do you even let people know? How do you, you know, it's like even social media, which eats up such a huge portion of my soul. If I give it any, if I give it any weight in my life, I really don't like what it takes away from me. But can you be a musician without social media anymore? Like, I don't even, you know, it's a, it, so it's a, it's a really weird world right now. And a huge part of me just wants to go like, okay, I guess I need to be really comfortable with obscurity. <laughs> and, <laughs> and maybe I just put out a lot more music to a, a, a lot less people and just don't think about success in any terms that I ever thought about it before. It's all got to be about the work I do. Um, yeah, it's, it's strange. It, uh, like I finally realized it's not personal and for years it felt personal. Um, so 
that's the odd career thing is I'm trying to not have a career. I'm trying to have a life at this point, but I want to have a life where I make mm-hmm. a lot of music. <laughs> you you opened a few doors. I'd, I'd like to walk in. You, yeah, um, there's a lot of word salad in there. <laughs> that's totally, that's totally fine. I, I, I do just want to backtrack a bit though, because you were talking about, um, I mean, basically you said the, the career can't be the impulse. And so I guess I wonder what does become the impulse. Like you talked about, like, I, I'm glad you brought up the singing circles because uh, like I've, I've seen those, like where you, where you've put them out there that like as an event coming up that you're doing. And, and I wondered about that. So is, is that a good example of maybe the new impulse where you're just sort of following, like that's where the energy is for you, so mm-hmm. to speak? Yeah. I mean, the first year that I was leading singing circles, um, I didn't put out anything publicly. Uh, I had a mailing list of friends. It was word of mouth and I wasn't taking any money at all until people started asking. And then I didn't keep any of it. We made everything charity donations for the first year. So uh, we just had the landslides. And so we were donating to the Santa Barbara you know, Relief Foundation, Santa Barbara Foundation Relief Fund or the Bucket Brigade or, you know, or, you know, uh, Doctors Without Walls, which does medicine for homeless people out here. And and so, you know, we, it, it just, I wanted to do something that was all an offering and not confuse it with, I don't know, livelihood, because having success early in life can really mess you up because you feel entitled to it, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so it felt really great to just do something that was all about other people and my soul. And, um, you know, I've slowly managed to allow, you know, after a year I said, okay, I'm going to take the money now. Is that okay? Am I still a good person? <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> But, you know, there's, it's not much. I mean, I make more playing a show, right? But it's, uh, but I get to do it at home. And it really, the thing with this kind of singing is like, most people don't even know it exists. And when they discover it, it's not for everybody, but there are a lot of people who, you know, just basically say they, they didn't know they were missing it. And, and they can't live without it now. Like, you know, it's that thing. If you went to church as a kid and you remember the singing together, but you've, you know, have a faith that is different now or don't have a faith at all and don't want to have to have a dogmatic buy-in to have that experience, you know, you can get together and sing these spiritual songs that don't, require any belief system they just require showing up and being together and it's really good medicine you know i think every every culture that's ever been has made music together um it's only recent that we've um recently that we've professionalized it and um having an opportunity to do that together i think just brings us back to our humanity Uh, my friend lisa Littlebird. Uh, who I learned this stuff from talks about, um, you know, wanting to make it as popular as, as yoga, you know, just so that if people are, you know, in the same way, like people are at this point, 
you know, and it wasn't this way 20 years ago where your average American will say like, ah, I feel like kind of, I don't feel like I'm in my body enough. I feel, you know, a little disconnected. I'm going to go to a yoga class and kind of settle in and mellow out. And in the same way, you know, if somebody goes, ah, I feel lonely, I feel disconnected. I feel like I just want to sit in some beauty and appreciation. I think I'll go, I think I'll go sing. I need a good sing today. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we want to, you know, it's something I think our, our bodies and minds actually require. I think it's that important. And um, it's been a, a lovely thing to bring that to people. Yeah. And it's made me, um, you know, I think I'm intimidated creatively by it because I would like in the music that I put out on my regular albums um, to include a degree of inclusiveness. And there's a way to compose for that. There's a way of writing songs um, that's a little more simple, uh, that, you know, there's some elegance to it. Rather than thinking of it as uh, dumbing down, you know, I think of it as elegance and essential, you know, essence. And so writing songs that invite people to sing along more quickly. And there was a period where I was writing, you know, the the Winter Pays for Summer album. There are these songs like Thankful, where I would cram as many like scientific or literary references <laughs> as I could, as many key changes, like everything was like, look at my brain. I got a giant brain. It's amazing. Look at my brain. And those and some of those songs are great, but um they're not something where somebody can just pick up a guitar and start playing along or where somebody can sing along on the first chorus. Um, and so I want to write songs that invite people to sing, like where by the second chorus, you, you know how it goes. Uh, and that's, that's really exciting to me because I like the idea, you know, if I can't afford to tour with a band, I can at least afford to write songs where the audience becomes the band. And the more I do that, uh, the happier I get on tour. And I have a few songs. There's a song called Held Up from the last record where I don't have a guitar. I just, you know, stomp and clap and sing. And it's amazing to see what it does to an audience, like to, to suddenly be, you know, in an acoustic show, you're used to sitting there and, eating your dinner while you watch. It's all very <laughs> nice, but uh, all of a sudden people are singing, clapping, and, uh, you know, I want more of that. Are you, are you completely over that, by the way? Like you talked earlier um, about, like, you know, I'm trying to cram in, like, look at my intelligence, my, you know, look how, but in a way, it's, it still sounded like there was a bit of, that it's painful to put away the cleverness uh, you know, it's painful to maybe, um, like, like, do you feel like you're fully over that? Um, no, I mean, old habits die hard and, um, I like cleverness. I like humor, you know, I, when I'm writing more, I end up doing like really silly things. I did like a I don't know if it's terrible or wonderful. Like I did a version of little bunny foo foo years ago on my laptop, just 
It's like Little Bunny Foo Foo almost as a Red Hot Chili Peppers song. <laughs> File it's, that under things I didn't think you'd say. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I, I even put it up online. I mean, it is dumb. And it was so fun to do. And I have a silly side. Uh, and I mean, I did a record called Remote Tree Children with my friend uh, John Askew that's um, completely letting our nerd flags fly. I mean, it's a ridiculous piece. I mean, uh, half, there's like three songs based on Radio Lab podcasts. There's a song about uh, gold farming. Do you know gold farming? Which was I, this. I do not. There were people in China professionally playing World of Warcraft. They would do repetitive tasks to build up gold, which took a lot of time to do. Um, and then American players would trade real money for fake World of Warcraft gold so that they could buy bigger swords and more spells. <laughs> and like literally, time is money. Time is money, and people were like living in these bunkhouses where it'd be a bunch of like, you know, 18 to 25 year olds living like eight to a room and playing World of Warcraft full time. Wow. Um, and it's this song about a World of Warcraft player, like telling the American player, like, you know, I could actually kick your ass in a fair fight. <laughs> like, you're, you're a twink. And I don't know why I researched all this World of Warcraft. Like, and so I wrote and uh, did an album that was uh, called Secrets of the New Explorers that was all about privatized space travel that includes a fairly scientifically accurate song about uh, space elevators that, uh, that was what I like. I got friends at NASA because of that album. Uh, and if you joined, there was a period where if you joined the National Space Elevator Consortium, as part of your membership packet, you would get a copy of my record <laughs> uh, along with, you know, your subscription to Elevate uh, magazine. So, I mean, I love nerding out. I get it, you know, and I made that record. There was part of me that thought, like, maybe NPR will like me finally. Maybe they'll think I'm relevant now that I've done the nerdiest <laughs> album ever recorded. And they didn't, it, they didn't notice it at all. Like, you know, <laughs> but NASA did. So that makes me happy. That's so, true. um, I mean, there's this part of me that, you know, wants my, you know, cause I was an artistic kid. My dad was a physicist and I always, I think I remember him trying to explain, uh, you know, quantum mechanics to me and I couldn't, it's like, when he tried to explain that, when he tried to explain calculus and I got glazed over, it's like the only time he ever looked disappointed in me. <laughs> and so I think there's part of me like trying to impress my father, you know, now that he's passed away, you know, my father and his ghost, I'm trying to be nerdy enough that he'd approve of me. Um, <laughs> but, and so there's a part of me that just loves doing that. Uh, and there's also a part of me that just like, I, since I have discovered, like, I don't have to be clever. I don't have to um, write in that modality. And it doesn't mean I stop, right? Because you start doing one thing doesn't mean, I mean, there's time. But uh, creativity is essentially polyamorous. Uh, 
you know, the, the difficulty in polyamory is not that people have a limited amount of love to give. It's that they have a lim- limited amount of time and attention. And uh, you can love as much as you want creatively. You can have as many creative ideas as you want, but you only have a certain amount of hours in the day. So if you're putting your attention into learning how to produce and record and arrange, you're going to give up time you could have writing something else. If you're writing songs all day long, you're not going to be writing poetry or prose all day long. You know, you got to choose. And I have had a little bit of a tendency to go wherever my current, uh, whatever's new and sparkly, right? I don't know why I'm using all these poly things, but they talk about new relationship <laughs> energy, right? It's the, you know, you meet somebody new and it's the most exciting thing there is because it's new. And I will creatively go to that um, instead of like just, you know, doing my going deeper into what I'm already working on. Um, but I think also that's fine. It means I can do a summer tour with Toad the Wet Sprocket, do the old band, make that audience happy. And when I'm done with that, because that's just, you know, a month and a half of my year, two months of my year, I get to go back and do my song circles. And I'm ex- so ecstatic about that. And then when I'm doing my song circles, I start to get excited about recording, you know, new songs for a solo record or doing another side project with John or, you know, one of my nerdier things, you know, it's like, so I like that I can kind of jump from one of these things to the other. Um, but that wasn't your question. Your question was about the simplicity. And so for me, part of it's like, taking my advice when I'm teaching songwriting or mentoring somebody, um, which I would like to do more of. I don't do enough because I have to get in a better state to do that. I have to teach not, you know, to do as I say, not as I always do. (laughs) Uh, And when I've had known people who are, you know, you know, they've just got a new publisher. They're trying to write pop songs and I'm trying to talk and talk to them about just write good songs. Don't try to write hits. Like God, you'll fail. If you try to follow Drake, that's not your job. (laughs) You're not Drake. He's already doing that. Like write you. Um, and you know, I've had friends where their management is telling them, you know, no, you got to dumb it down. You got to dumb it down. And I just, I hate that idea of dumbing down. Like Bob Marley wasn't dumbing down. Bob Marley was refining. And, you know, those songs are bright and true and elegant. And, you know, it's not dumb. It's refined. It's, um, it's precise and to the point and economical. And like thinking of it in those ways, um, makes it, it's why he's brilliant, right? <laughs> Uh, he's saying something that's true and he's being bold and brave about that truth. He's not running away from it. He's not trying to hide it under cleverness. His metaphors are, you know, like elegant and, and there is simplicity in that, but it's not because there's not a massive sophistication operating underneath it. Right. That's the, you know, the same, I talk about, 
I have difficulty writing happy songs. And it's one of those reasons I idolize, you know, certain periods of Van Morrison, you know, that Astral Weeks. And, you know, it's like you, you go back and he's writing these songs that are just so joyous and they're not lightweight. Somehow he manages to write these songs that are, you know, like, and it stoned me that are just, they, they're so evocative and they take you into such a beautiful place. And they're, I don't know that like there's, it never feels light. It never feels like he's ignoring how complex life really is. He's doing some Mary Oliver trick of like (laughs) all the, you know, darkness is still there in the background, even though it's just talking about how light dances, right? That's a great Um, reference. Yeah, my my divorce got me really into David White and Mary Oliver and Pema Chodron and Martin Prechtel and uh, even uh, Stephen Jenkinson. You know, I that was how I wrote my last record. I was reading them because that was the stuff I needed to survive as my old life ceased to exist. <laughs> well, and that even uh, even wrote a song directly from Prechtel. That's the grief and praise. When you're when you're in a season like that, I want to shift gears because when you're in a season like that, going through so much, um, you know the uh, the last album was was very personal. But was is the I wanted to ask you: Is there ever a moment that's too personal for you? Like, does the cutting room floor sort of hold a line, or or are you just all there? It's. Uh, there's there's some stuff that's not necessarily too personal, but I don't think it's going to do anybody much good. (laughs) Meaning I wrote some breakup songs that no one needs to hear because we've all heard them too much that are uh, entitled and petty and blamey. And that's not, you know, the, the more I think of, you know, music is a tool. And there, there is something to be said for writing those songs because they're universal here. And they're, you know, a person doesn't want to feel like they're the only person to have ever felt this thing. But I do feel increasingly there's, uh, I like to write something that's a tool for me, uh, and can therefore be a tool for somebody else to invest in their higher self without denying all their other places. <laughs> right. So, um, so wallowing doesn't get me very far forward. Um, and there's songs on that album and we'll, we can talk about prompts in the middle there uh, in a minute. There are a lot of songs on that album that were, uh, coming from prompts. Uh, I was going to, I was going to do a total spiritual bypass I wanted to write a happy, upbeat song. I didn't want to write anything about what I was going through. I had really severe writer's block. Um, and uh, my friend Natalia Zuckerman suggested that I join um, this writing group that Matt, the electrician, has from time to time. And he sends out, he just goes through a dictionary and looks at words and comes up with a title every week. And sends out an email on Wednesday. And then the next Wednesday, uh, there were like 18 of us. There are 18 songs with that title. 
And it's just a, a way of getting out of resistance, right? Uh, that you write a song a week. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't, you know, don't have to do a great recording. But these were good songwriters. Um, and you're responsible to other people. Like if you don't write the song, he just drops you from the list. <laughs> and I've been dropped a few times. Um, <clears throat> I should probably actually write him and see if he's still doing it. Cause because maybe you've been dropped. Oh, no, I was dropped. I've been dropped <laughs> okay. a couple times. Um, I'll start touring or get really busy, and then I'll stop, and then he just drops you, and it's fine. And sometimes he's too busy and can't keep it going. Um, but in the middle of my writer's block, he sent this title, and I think the first title I got from him was Reconstructing the Diary. And I picked up a ukulele, and I wrote that song in less than an hour, like 45 minutes. Wow. Uh, and I had the title and the title, you know, reconstruct, it just allowed me to write something that was true in a general sense. Um, but that because the title wasn't mine, it wasn't about me. I could just write something and it happened to be relevant. I mean, so a lot of these songs, they kind of feel intensely autobiographical, but they're fictionalized, you know, they're, they're, I mean, it's the same thing you'd do if you're a novelist, you wouldn't, if you write the story of your own breakup, it's a memoir. Or if you're writing, um, trying to think what the, is it a, a simple plan, a modest, it's not a modest proposal. Uh, do you, have you ever read Oe, Kinsborough Oe? No. And he writes this book. He has, he's an amazing writer, uh, and he, he wrote a book, um, he has a son who was born, you know, like, um, special needs with some deformities and, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, kind of, you know, mentally, uh, mentally handicapped and, and he wrote this book, uh, which was basically his nightmare scenario of this father who wants to, you know, have the baby aborted and wants to run away. And he, I mean, it's this beautiful and harrowing and intensely painful book. And the protagonist in it is just, it's so hard because he is so, you know, so deeply rejecting this responsibility that's come into his life. And, uh, and uh, as a father, Kenzaburo, oh, I mean, deeply loves his boy, lives for his boy. And the book is the nightmare scenario. The book is him doing all the things that were his worst instinct. I mean, another person who does some of this in writing uh, is if you listen to um, Laurie McKenna, uh, and she's known now for having these huge you know, hits. She wrote uh, uh, Girl Crush, and she wrote... Um, what was the big song that Tim McGraw did? Humble and Kind, right? But her early albums, they're these worst case scenarios. They're all about leaving her, you know, she had, she started writing songs, I think in her thirties, she had five kids, husband like worked for the electric company. And she started writing these songs about breakups. And like, if you're going to leave me, make every word hurt and like affairs. And she just put all her nightmare scenarios about her relationship into her songs. 
and they're so good. <laughs> and so, you know, that you can fictionalize and it doesn't mean it's not really true. Yeah. And, and it gives you an opportunity to go into a darker place um, and really explore it without having to necessarily do that in real life, right? <laughs> so there are a few songs. The song Leaving Old Town was another um, prompt from Matt. And there it was in the title. It was just about putting everything behind me. You know, there was this urge to go, um, you know, you take all the friends, you take the house, you take everything. I'll just go. I'll... I'll go by myself and, you know, this wintry, cold, sacrificial kind of feelings, that lonely, um, that loneliness. And I will say in my divorce, you know, my, my ex was never cruel, was never unkind. She was never, she was, she knew we were done, um, before I did <laughs> and, uh, and, I was never asked. None of our friends ever tried to split up uh, between us. They never tried to take sides. Uh, and um, I felt good that she and I pretty much told the same story, you know, that our friends were like, huh, you're not telling me different, you know, we're, we weren't fictionalizing and telling wildly different tales to the people we love, um, which isn't to say it wasn't the most painful experience of my entire life. <laughs> I hope, you know, I don't know, you know, probably death of parents comes close. Like it's the most painful experience you can ever go through, especially if there's deep love still there. Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, getting to write those songs, you know, and there's songs like go, uh, which was inspired by a podcast, which I can't find actually. This podcast was um, doing this thing on, it was like, I think it was Strangers, but she had a guest podcaster and I haven't found it. And it was talking about lighthouses as this style of love uh, that was um, about loving something by letting it go, right? Mostly yeah. we say, I love you, come close. But the lighthouse says, I love you, stay away. <laughs> Don't come here. It's really not good for you. And, um, you know, that song has this really specific imagery in it. Yeah. Um, at the same time, that was written uh, with this guy, Chris Olorsky, who came in and he just had this one line that was, you know which way to go. And he had the basic melody of the verse and this line, you know, which way to go. I had just heard that podcast. Uh, I was, you know, brought in that lighthouse imagery. And actually I, I wrote a whole other part. I added the, the line, I love you now, now go. I think after the fact, he recorded a version of the song that doesn't have some of the parts that mine does. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, and that song, I felt in some ways it was, it was inhabiting um, my, 
my ex-wife's perspective of trying to let me go with love. Um, and I was in a relationship immediately after where I knew I wasn't falling in love, but, you know, was, uh, you know, I, I was having the same experience of like, I, I had a lover after we broke up and I was like, oh, I'm not ready. I can't commit. I can't do this to somebody again. You know, I was stepping away too. And it was giving me this compassion. You know, it's the amazing thing in life is if you keep your eyes open, it lets you play every character and, it, and you know, <laughs> you think you're on one side of a narrative and then all of a sudden you're on the other side. And if you can look at that and it can give you more compassion for, you know, oh God, this is, I'm, I'm this role now. Like I thought, <laughs> I thought she had it easy. This part's hard, <laughs> you know, breaking up with somebody's just as, it's even worse than being broken up with. And so, it's uh it's beautiful <laughs> i mean that song is actually what prompted me to ask about songs being too personal because these lines are just so like you know like i'm still dreaming of your eyes your mouth your touch but i won't have another wreck on my watch and then and then you said that line which was so i love that line where you said and you you know which way to go that you said chris brought to the mix it's just, like it, yeah. It just feels the imagery works. It feels very personal. It feels like you're like you're just inhabiting that space with you as the songwriter, and it, mm -hmm. it just made me wonder how, yeah, the difficulty of those. But it's that's how truth comes through because I have sung that line, and I have thought of my ex-wife. I thought of my ex-lover. I thought of being on the other side of that and having somebody look at me and say that, you know, I thought like it, um, we can be, I mean, we are every one of these aspects. That's the thing about being human. Um, we're not one thing. We're certainly not just one thing at one time. And if our perspective goes broad enough, um, you know, uh, it can get fairly psychedelic, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, into just words, you know, we are just a fractal node of complexity and emergence. That is all we are. We are in a universe where the, the majority of mass isn't even something we can detect, right? <laughs> you know, um, and there, and we're nothing new. Everything we felt, every little heartbreak is every bit of joy or happiness is on the one hand unique to us and just another human being feeling and thinking and being. And, uh, you know, art is that's why it works. And so, so, uh, there's this specificity in, yeah, your eyes, your mouth. And I have sung that line. Uh, at so many, in so many times from so many different perspectives, it's not just one thing. And my ability to be able to inhabit that song from a number of positions, from a, you know, from a number of perspectives is, is what makes it work for me. Um, it's like a combination of specificity and generality. 
and for me, that's when I'm writing at my best. Um, and so taking this thing that, yeah, it's not just one thing. It's not about one relationship. It actually switches. I'm referencing, you know, the parts of it that are maybe slightly more personal. Um, uh, they skip around a lot, uh, but they're all true. You've been listening to The Resistance. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And for more information and further episodes, you can find us at listentotheresistance.com. Our theme is composed by Chad Howitt. Engineering, production, and additional music by Jay Kirkpatrick. My name is Matt Connor, and I'm your host. Join us for our next episode, a conversation with Grammy-winning artist Fantastic Negrito.